Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. The big game is coming up, and Podcast One wants to be sure you're ready for the action. For all the NFL and sports coverage you need, make sure to check out The Dan Patrick Show, Rich Eisen Show, Ross Tucker's Football Podcast, and the rest of Podcast One Sportsnet. We've got the biggest guests, the best commentary, and everything in between. Be sure to subscribe to these shows and more on Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, and many other podcast apps so you can get new episodes every week. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Danny Wu, your host, and so happy for you to join us this week. It is a tough week, or last few days, for the basketball world, but I have a great guest to talk about that and a whole lot, of, a whole lot more, Ben Taylor of Thinking Basketball. And we had planned this long before Kobe Bryant's passing, and that's where we conclude the podcast. But we start with some of his breakout players of the year, player development, all that kind of fun stuff. And then we get into Kobe's life and legacy for towards the end of the podcast. This episode is brought to you by Keeps. Go to keeps.com slash realgm. You can get a first month of treatment for free, which is fantastic. They're a new sponsor. And betonline.ag. And use that podcast one promo code for a 50% sign-up bonus. I also talk with Dave Mason and BetOnline after the Ben Taylor portion. I talked with Ben for a little bit over an hour. It is a great conversation that that definitely has some ebbs, flows, and, and weight to it. And I hope, you, I hope you really enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. This is a strange time of year for the NBA because it's kind of the in many ways it's it's the doldrums because we're you know we're it's it's the hard work of feeling like you're learning more because you you feel like you get the sense of teams and players but then also remembering that things evolve that's why I've been I've been excited to especially your video stuff to be watching some of what you've been doing regarding some of the development of young players and you did a, a segment on, on your most recent Thinking Basketball video that was about Donovan Mitchell, and I think what's what what is good about like the discussion with Mitchell is it's it's not about these Siakam sized leaps in terms of playmaking and role. It's more how young players usually get better, which is incremental steps to get you know a little bit more touch as passer, get a little bit stronger as a finisher, and that's usually the way this works. I mean, if you are an all time great player, you tend to start you start high. And then as you as you sort of take the league in in your first year or two, Chris Paul is a good example recently, obviously LeBron by a second year, you, you have something that looks like an enormous leap for everyone else, pretty much in the history of the sport. You know, think of Kyle Lowry on the opposite end of that spectrum. 
all you have is slow, steady, gradual, incremental improvements. And the way the mind works, of course, is it's hard to see those changes. It's like looking yourself every day in the mirror and not realizing you've aged 10 years because it just still looks the same, but you have the frog in boiling water. And I think I think that's essentially what's happening with Mitchell. He just keeps getting a little bit better every year to me. And there are lots of different ways that a player a player can improve that affect especially in his capacity running a fair amount of the offense there and like you brought up the more reliable mid-range jumper that is extremely important for for him because you know we'll we'll see what happens with three moving forward but the the mid-range shot especially in the modern NBA it's for for guys who have the ball in their hands particularly if they have a role man that that team's fear they will be able to get to that shot and they're Part of NBA defense is that there are certain things that you have to concede, and if Mitchell can make that shot reliably enough to make it even a neutral, but if especially if it's a positive, then that can be a, I don't want to call it a bedrock, but it can be a, a nice little fallback in terms of his overall efficiency. It's, it's another layer. Uh, I've certainly talked about this before. It's like, you know, you don't necessarily want to take and build an offense around mid-range shots, but to your point, when you're one of these guys that's driving the offense, having that third level having that in-between game, having another little curveball you can throw uh, gives you more counters. It makes it harder for people to take away your bread and butter in the postseason. And that, like, I was watching him on film a lot, trying to put my finger on it before I actually, you know, then I looked at the numbers and I'm saying like, oh, okay, everything's up a little bit. This makes sense. This is jibing with what I'm seeing. But it's such a subtle kind of improvement for him that it took me a while to, and I kept looking at 2019 shots versus 2020 shots. I had him side by side in my editor. I had him playing at 10% speed. And I really settled on this idea that he's just like more comfortable and more on balance with everything he does, just getting into his moves, getting into his shot. And that's the thing that comes with age incrementally. And I think that makes him materially better, even if we don't think of that as like a, a most improved player kind of jump. Another part of Mitchell's game, and it is still crazy to me that the best I've seen him play defensively one-on-one was in his first summer league against Jason Tatum. He actually guard. I, I don't know exactly how and why that happened, but in Utah summer league, so the very beginning, he guarded Tatum a little bit and actually ripped him up a couple times. Right, right. But as a functional team defender, and it helps that when you have Rudy Gobert, there are specific concepts that a team is trying to execute. But he's, he does a pretty good job in that, and that's, t- to me, and you talked in, in the video about how there can be a discussion about whether he's a slight negative, a neutral, slight positive, everything in that respect. But having Rudy Gobert, and really, I mean, and, and you can talk about this in most team concepts, being anything better than like a slight negative is, is really important because then right. it's, it's a, a harder place to attack. And when you are the tip of the spear, as, as Mitchell often is, especially in this time when Mike Conley hasn't played— that becomes even more important because if the point of failure is the place where things most often start, it just creates so many more problems. Yeah, absolutely. By the way, every time now I hear tip of the spear, I think edge of the knife um, from Edge of Tomorrow with uh, with Tom Cruise. Uh, maybe is that, that's just, is now the time that I should admit that I still haven't seen that. Yes, I think so. I think so because it's it's I don't know. I think it's just a a great sort of is what it is a uh, sci-fi movie but well if, if our mutual friend Sam Vecini was on he'd probably yell at me for the next 10 minutes about having not having seen it but thankfully I don't think he'll do that so um <laughs> I won't I won't do that but the, the point I think is perfect and and syncs up with you know what I was trying to get at in the video to a degree which is 
uh, Utah is going to create a scheme built around Rudy Gobert, as they should. I thought Quinn Snyder has done an excellent job with sort of fitting those pieces in and saying, look, we got to funnel stuff into Rudy. This is how we want to play this. And Mitchell is hitting more of those notes to me this year than he has in the past. He, he did a little last year as well, but I just think having that sturdiness now, Royce O'Neal, also a guy who uh, I'm very high on from the defensive perspective that you specifically called out when we recorded our players to watch for improvements in 2020 podcast uh, before the season. And it's like, now you start putting these guys together on the perimeter. Sometimes Royce is going to be navigating that screen point of attack on the ball. Sometimes it's going to be Mitchell. But if they're executing the game plan well, um, then, as you said, it's like you're not bleeding anything here. If anything, you're adding to the system by filling in and, and sort of doing your job, so to speak, to use to use that parlance to, to do your job. Right. And that's also I mean, sometimes this comes up offensively. I, I know that for me, Harden is a good example here where one player's excellence allows you to, to handle different levels from your other players. You know, the, the idea basically being that like Ben McElmore functions a lot better in the Rockets offense because James Harden can do the heavy lifting of creating the looks that Ben McElmore can do well with without forcing Ben McElmore to create those looks himself. And I think that it, it can be the same thing defensively depending on how a coach does a scheme and how everything else. And I think that it's another part of Rudy Gobert's value to an extent that he can lower these bars for other players, and th- when they exceed it, it becomes a bigger net benefit than it would be otherwise. It's funny we don't talk about that with defense very often, but but you're right; it's there. It's the same idea. It's like you're you're take you're a star defender, and so now you have more sort of uh, freedom or versatility to find the right role for a guy to succeed in versus him being out on an island. You know, especially back in the day, like more of defense was isolation defense or if you were you know playing a great post player can you handle them one-on-one or something and your skills are just bare and naked to be attacked you know just deal with it as best you can or the double team is going to save you and then that brings its own thing but now uh with the complexity of the game with all the schemes and things like that i think there's certainly more places if you have a rudy gobert behind you if you have Joel Embiid, whoever it is, um, and sometimes you can say the same thing with a perimeter guy, like what Paul George can do up and down the roster positionally with his size and his wingspan. It's the same thing. Now you can start slotting in teammates next to him uh, in more of a role that you can find that that makes him a positive defensive player, and that's a, that's a really meaningful thing to me. And I'll go a step beyond that, which is at various moments in time, basically all of them. Nate and I have espoused the virtues of switch-based systems. And one of the benefits there is if you have the right players that it can it can ask less of less of each individual guy in terms of reads and feels and all that kind of stuff. I mean, the Rockets are a good example here. However, one of the problems that we've been running into, especially when a lot of teams use that same approach, is that the supply of the individuals who happen to fit that description is incredibly small. And so there is also intense value in somebody like Rudy Gobert because running Running a system when zigging when other teams are zagging allows you to value attributes that other teams do not, and thus you can get theoretically 
better value. It's kind of like those team, NFL teams that use a different blocking system, and so they can they maybe they use faster offensive linemen, or or they use you know heavier ones or something else. And and there is from a team building perspective, going in a different direction and succeeding at it can be really can be really effective from that perspective as well. That you don't have to get these six foot seven guys that are just so valuable around the league, especially if they can move their feet. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well said. And I think you guys have talked about it. You and Nate have talked about it extensively, just how rare it is to actually find high level, competent wing players who can play switchable schemes. Well, and, and who can shoot. I mean, right, that's the issue. Think, that's think the about issue. that as, as another fundamental thing here. That if you could have, you know, the amount of six foot seven players that can move their feet and shoot is an even smaller group, and that's why some of those guys get drafted really high, get get overpaid. Even though not only is shooting the swing skill, but it doesn't necessarily seem like for most guys that it's even that consistent. You know, a guy who shoots thirty nine percent one year, maybe he's at thirty three or thirty two the next year, and then then thus it's you know hopefully they got paid on the thirty nine year for their sake instead of the thirty three year. I mean, I, I think it's fascinating to think about the evolution of three and D just in general, right? And and how three and D for a while and maybe still in some circles is seen as almost like a pejorative like a like a basic kind of player like oh, he's just a 3 and D role player but having a really good 3 and D role player not only adds a lot of value but there just aren't that many of them it's not an easy or trivial thing to be a really helpful defensive player especially one that can play multiple positions today defensively and then on the other end you make you know 38 39 40% of your spot ups consistently not just in one season like you are a good shooter in that role i know this isn't where you where you were thinking it would go but i feel like you're you're kind of leading me down the path to a very different conclusion which is my my Zach Levine kind of take which is this there is a lot more value in the in the constructing a NBA team in having a player who is who will always be low usage but does a lot of other things well, as opposed to a player who is higher usage but does not sufficiently elevate your team's offense. And so Zach Levine is a good example here. Like Levine, talented player, and so this year for the Bulls, he's putting up, and, and yeah, the surrounding talent, especially with injuries and some of the guys just not being as good as we hoped, isn't it? Okay, Zach Levine. 32% usage, 21% assist percentage using basketball references version. And, you know, actually above average true shooting, which is this is his second year in a row, third year out of four, though there's a sample size issue with some of those. So all that, you know, you could say, hey, it's good to have people who stop up possessions, all that. And I'm not saying this is Zach Levine's fault. It isn't. But the Bulls have a 107.5 offensive rating when he's on the floor. And while that is significantly better than what it is when he sits, that's still not good enough to actually use. And so my idea is players like Zach Levine are actually significantly less valuable because you want somebody better than him. And when you slot in that better person, he becomes less valuable. Yeah, completely agree. I mean, you're you're preaching to the choir in a sense. This ties into my ideas about player portability, scaling the skill up. And the guy I really think of, Levine's a good example. And again, not that he is necessarily not a good player per se, but when you contrast him to someone who I think is sort of an exemplar in this other category right now from an historical perspective, uh, and that player I'm thinking of is Danny Green, it's like you have night and day in terms of skills and how they would fit on certain teams and things like that. But would I rather have Danny Green playing next to Kawhi last year and the Raptors and fitting in next to LeBron and Anthony Davis this year or Zach Levine I would rather have 
Danny Green, I think, in all of those situations. And I'm not even sure how much I would give it a second thought. Yeah, and the guy that I've brought up here, on, only on the offensive end, because he's so much better defensively, is Jason Tatum. And Tatum, he... I think when I watch the Celtics over the next couple of years, I, I'm going to be I'm going to be focusing in on this basic question for him, and I, I've been struggling with this for two years now, and I think it's going to continue for at least another two, which is his shot profile off the top of my head, but I believe when I looked into it last year was was right too, is meaningfully different from most of the rest of the Celtics, and you know the team has turned around a fair amount over the, over these last two years with Horford and Kyrie leaving, and then Kemba coming in, in their place, and. So you have these kind of two competing ideas. One of them is, hey, nobody else is taking these shots, and he is, so why? And, and, the, and generally speaking, I'm talking like pull-up twos and things like that, which are generally lower-value shots, though some players, especially stars, like have to take those and make them. And so then the other part is what I've always thought of as the, the, I, the Brandon Roy thing, going back to when he was at UW and then early in his career at Portland, which is somebody has to take these shots. So maybe it's not fair to ding Jason Tatum if he's the one who always ends up with the, with the flaming bag. And so what I need to figure mm-hmm. out with Boston is, and maybe I could talk to Jared Weiss or somebody else, it's just like, I still haven't pieced together what of that is inexorable Jason Tatum and what of that is actually sort of desirable because somebody has to do it and he's better at it than most. Boy, the the subtlety in your last point. I, I was right with you until the subtlety of your last point. And then I'm like, actually, <laughs> I don't I don't know if I know the answer to that, because I, I think what I'm pretty clear on with Tatum at this point, having seen a lot of him, not just last year and doing a piece on him, but uh, I have some other Celtics material coming up this season. Jalen Brown specifically is probably going to be my next player profile. And so the thing I would say that I'm clear on with Tatum is that he is one of the few guys in history when you look at his true shooting percentage, it really does betray to a certain degree how efficient he is as an offensive player. I, I Just as an aside, I, I kind of like to talk about true shooting percentage as reflective of the pressure you put on a defense. Because we know that true shooting percentage is not going to be stable from environment to environment. We know it'll slightly change if your role changes, if your teammates changed, if you're taken out of your bread and butter and your comfort zone, or if you're asked to do way more heavy lifting. Like one of the things that's gone under the rug that I didn't really realize until I did my uh, most recent Thinking Basketball podcast on most improved players was Pascal Siakam has had meaningful improvement in his offensive game, and it's led to a much higher volume in scoring. His efficiency has gone in the tank. Is completely plummeted this year, which is not unexpected with that kind of role change, right? But getting back to Tatum, with him, he does have the hot grenade at the end of the possession a lot, somewhat by design, you could say, right? Because there's he, he and Kemba Walker are really the only two guys that when you get deep in the clock and you need like an emergency rescreen for something are going to, in two, three, four seconds, be comfortable generating their own stuff, either as a pull-up, get in the mid-range, whatever. And I don't think he's particularly skilled in that area yet. And you can maybe make that a creating something out of nothing. Yes, exactly. But but the point the the place that I've landed on with him is that if he were good at that, we would actually be talking about someone who's more like a top 10 ish fringe high level player like that, because not only would he have that skill at the end of the clock, which all of a sudden his points per game would go up a little bit because his efficiency would go up a little bit. But then he could use that at other times as well. 
And it's like, wait a second, then in theory that boosts Boston's scoreboard advantage even more when he's on the court and he's been a plus minus monster. And so now you, when you put everything together, you wouldn't be so sort of um, taken aback by his efficiency. You'd go like, whoa, this is a guy now who can carry a scoring load. He's playing winning basketball. He's playing on a high level offense. The Celtics have one of the best offenses in the league this year. He makes a huge difference when he's on and off the court. And I'm no longer kind of shaking my head at that efficiency number. So that, that was a lot for me to say, uh, but the takeaway, I think, is that in that particular area, he's one of the few guys where I really think the true shooting percentage betrays, you know, he's a low turnover player. He does so much within the Boston offense, and so many of those possessions are indeed hot grenade possessions, and he's just not great at it yet. I think that's a totally reasoned take, but it's also, I, I think it's also distinctly possible, yeah, Tatum's 21, that the jump that you were talking about is an extremely difficult one. And, you know, get it, make the guy from off the top of my head, and you, you know, you have a much better sense of basketball history than I do. It seems like the creating something out of nothing skill is, is in my brain, is more innate than it is developed and learned. But maybe I'm wrong on that. I don't think you're wrong. Um, because I think I think there are fewer examples of that level, like to get to that level of offensive player, probably just off the top of my head, thinking about my my historical work. We're talking about 35, 40 guys, you know, in the last like 40 years who are really meaningfully excellent at that level. And a bunch of them are playing right now. But out of that whole group, I mean, how many sort of stumbled their way through it slowly over many, 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 many years very few, like Kawhi Leonard is an example. And of course, he is a he is an all time, you know, development story. But there just aren't a lot of guys who who have done that. Go ahead. Well, and also Kawhi, I, he, he's instructive here because part of how he does it is through an unusual and it's funny that it is the same. That's the similar word strength. You know, Kawhi Leonard being one of the strongest physically players in the entire NBA allows a lot of this stuff to work. And Tatum, you know, so Kawhi is, you know, he is, I think he's an under, underappreciated athlete as well in terms of burst, but like Tatum, he's just, he's, he's at a different level. So he also doesn't have the, the, as much of the elusiveness. And I think he can put it together. I'm not, you know, the, the capability is there, but I think it's harder for him than a lot of the other players, just because think about one of the ways that I like to evaluate the like players in the NBA now is, okay, how do you create an advantage? And so for some players, that's a really fast first step. For some players, that's being stronger or being smarter or everything else. And the problem with grenade, stu- grenade stuff is it kind of has to be a basic intrinsic thing like that because everything else takes too long. Right. And I, and I, think, I think that's where I, I think you agree where I kind of land on being somewhat cautious about how would this translate in other environments is in other words is he going to grab the bull by the horns when he shouldn't if he doesn't have as much offensive talent around him because you know he's to your point he's not that great at this and it's probably unlikely not that he couldn't do it but it's unlikely that you know in the next few years he's just uh (laughs) taking over games with mid-range stuff left and right I would be beyond shocked if you remembered this, but my number one note for Tatum when we when we did film on him as a draft prospect, and he's Tatum, somebody who I'm familiar with going back to, I actually talked with him personally at the Hoop Summit before his year at Duke, 
was my f- number one comment on him overall was he is way too comfortable taking bad shots. Yeah. And the Boston offense has fewer of those shots for him. And he's also got his approach has gotten way better. And I full credit to him. It's not a surprise. I remember when I talked with him, he was very, very connected as a player. Actually, I'll bring up one of the things he said. I asked him because I was looking at that Duke team was basically like, who are you going to defend? And what he his answer was, I'll defend whoever they put in front of me. And that ended up being not only useful in terms of Duke, but also in terms of the Celtics, because he's taken on all sorts of different different roles. And then his best stuff is actually not in that man-to-man, but as a help defender and as a team defender more so than as a help defender, I guess. Right. Just even scanning some other names in the league, you know, like Jimmy Butler is another example of a guy who now can generate more of his own stuff like that. Yeah, and- he's probably the template, actually. I would say he, he's, uh, in terms of players I can think of for what for what you're saying Tatum could try to eventually become, but what right. might be the most reasonable one, because again, you know, like he's a talented athlete to be damn sure, but he's not in that like LeBron, Kawhi, Kyrie types of levels of something truly special that they do one thing or the other. And I think what's interesting and the, the thing that landed me on Butler, A, I'm, I'm scanning their stats right now. Tatum takes about seven mid-range jumpers a year, uh, a game this year, uh, or around a game. These are per 75 possessions. So he's around seven per 75 possessions. He's shooting 38%. And Butler is taking six. He's shooting 35%. Um, so even even looking to Butler, you're not necessarily talking about a guy who's spectacular in that category. And then the other thing about him is I feel like at Marquette, he had a little bit more of that, you know, like off the bounce game that when he got to the NBA didn't necessarily translate right away. But he, this is your point about it being in the DNA, you know, in the instinct. And I don't know if that is the it, Tatum has had that to the same degree uh, when he was at Duke. Yeah, it, it, it will definitely be interesting to watch. Lots more to talk about with Ben Taylor. But first, a message from Keeps. In a stat that is both important and hurts my heart, two out of three guys will experience some form of male pattern baldness by the time they're 35, which I turn later this year. However, there is good news. With today's advancements in science, Keeps offers proven treatments that can combat the symptoms of hair loss and help you keep the hair you have at half the cost of your local pharmacy. Prevention is key, and Keeps treatments really work. They're up to 90% effective at reducing and stopping further hair loss, and that means the sooner you start using keeps the more hair you'll save so acting fast really does help many men even experience hair regrowth with keeps treatments find out why keeps has more five-star reviews than any of its competitors and nearly 100,000 men trust keeps for their hair loss prevention medication keeps treatments start at just ten dollars a month plus for a limited time you go to keeps k-e-e-p-s.com slash real gm and you get your first month of treatment for free that is a fantastic deal for you. It also tells them that you came from us, which is a great piece of synergy. So again, that's keeps, K-E-E-P-S dot com slash real GM for that first free month of treatment. Check out keeps and keep your hair. Somebody else I wanted to talk about, you did a video on him, on him fairly recently, I think it was a couple weeks ago, with Shea Gilgis-Alexander, and I, I enjoyed your video in no small part because he's somebody that I'm having some trouble figuring out, and I think that you did a good job of illustrating, kind of, for me, both the positives and the negatives. So, I, I, cor- well, for me, what the part of it, so, okay, i try to put my thoughts together on this. So, <laughs> okay. he is, he is intriguing as a, as a scorer and one-on-one creator for his own stuff. And, you know, he's unconventional, both his handle is really tight, and the angles that he takes to the basket can sometimes be unusual, which is something I absolutely love. I think that 
that that players could use it. But my biggest concern with with Shea, and it's part of why I'm so happy that this Thunder team ended up being, you know, Presti ended up with what he did, is that my biggest concern with Shea is that he doesn't have the right, the vision and the passing toolbox, that's usually the term I use for like actually knowing what pass to throw, having the ability to throw them at the right speed and angle and all that type of stuff, to really generate a ton of, of easy shots for teammates. And so playing with this Chris Paul team is, is such a nice fit for him at this point in his career. And now Shea is so young that there is no way to say that is all he's ever going to be or anything like that. But kind of like we were talking about with Jason Tatum, passing vision is another one of those, especially with the vision part of it, that it's like if you if you don't have that preternatural head up like, you know, like LeBron or at, at Luka, that type of stuff. I don't see many guys just developing that approach in time. Yeah, and I think that's why I sort of landed at the end of the video on the idea that, well, I really like him as a player and he's just I think he's just going to be a mainstay as a high level player, whether that's the Mike Conley route or whether he makes some all star teams. I don't know, but that's a different type of peak than your all NBA sort of long shot MVP guard who can just carve up people. And I mean, you know, I don't even want to evoke Dame Dame Lillard's name because he's averaging about 62 points a game this week. Um, But that kind of, you know, that's a different player. Dame, of course, himself isn't even a great passer, but not having that in your toolbox to use your your term there uh, i think that is kind of the thing that i'm a little more concerned about with him uh if you want to project him forward as like a a high level offensive centerpiece right and the the basic test that i've been using the last couple of years is the the him alone is the way that i describe it so right right is putting this player on a team make whatever thing we're talking about, you know, make you good, pretty good, great, you know, whatever that's going to be. And that's, you know, the players who could do that on one end of the floor are usually in the MVP conversation. The guys who could do it on both are Giannis um, <laughs> and, and LeBron in his prime and a few other guys. And so I think that Shea most likely ends up not doing that on either end. And that's why to me, like the MVP upside that you talked about, that that's why he doesn't get all the way there. I am very encouraged. It's so, it's so interesting how this happens. Shea, his three-point shooting has dropped from, in, in terms of percentage, from 37% last year to 34% this year. But I'm actually somewhat encouraged by that because, one, his frequency has gone up. And generally, when your frequency goes up per, per possession, like per 100 possessions, that generally means you're taking tougher shots. So you expect the efficiency to go down. But then the other thing is, when he was on the Clippers last year, 90% of Shea's three-point attempts were assisted. And now that's right, down to right. 61%. Right. And Generally speaking, catch and shoot threes are meaningfully easier than self-created. And so I still think the general arc is there. But, I mean, Shea's 21 at this point. He'll turn 22 before the start of next season. There's still a lot of room for him to grow. But if I were, you know, an odds maker, to me the most likely thing is that he's – I'm confident that he'll be a starter. And he could potentially be an above-average starter. But getting into that, especially on the guard line, getting into, yeah, that all-NBA consideration, it would, you know, on a regular basis, because players could get in there year by year. I think that threshold might be a little bit much. Not foreclosing on it, to be damn sure. But I think that, you know, especially because guard defense, and he has intriguing tools, but not, like, I don't see him as just, like, a pure lockdown guy, depending on how they want to see it. You know, that's... It's a player that you'd like to have on your team, but he's not the best player on a great team. So I did look at his splits when he was 
off the uh, on the court without Chris Paul and on the court with Chris Paul. And his passing was a little better. Statistically goes up a little bit in my passer rating. But everything, and I do like him as a passer. I just don't necessarily see like a, a high-end superstar creator. Uh, but everything else remains somewhat similar. And to your point, to your other point, because I do like to look at that as an indicator, right? That like, well, what is it actually like when he has whatever it was, 600 minutes this season when he's kind of been asked to drive a little bit more and some of those, has, he has Schroeder next to him and Schroeder handles some of those responsibilities. But at least right now, he's not going to be the, the full-time quarterback, do it alone, do everything kind of guy. The other thing to your point is very similar to Siakam with the shooting. It's like, not only do we say development doesn't go in a straight line, it's just not this linear thing, but there's complexities to how it turns out in the, the statistical measurements. So 37% down to 34%, you might be inclined to say his three-point shooting got worse, but he's now got the step back. He's more comfortable pulling this thing in people's face, which he didn't have last year. He's got kind of that like pseudo set shot kind of unique release. And yet he's getting this off, which is a very encouraging sign, despite the percentage going down. And the connection, of course, to Siakam is if you look at his overall percentages and his scoring percentages, it's like gone in the tank. But he now has more in his bag. And we would think that makes him a, even if it's not a huge improvement, that makes him a better offensive player because you can ask more of him in different settings, in the playoffs, against different opponents, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And that, that transferability, portability becomes becomes important for thinking about different teams. And Sam Presti, assuming he keeps that job and presumably that would be to get a different job, not because they're going to fire him, is how you build around Shea for the next five years or so becomes a bigger challenge and and yeah teams are always going to do best player available to an extent but he in particular is uh, is somebody that i think i'm going to be challenged with but what makes me feel a little bit more comfortable with it is that i like shay's more set shot his more catch and shoot and so maybe the end game here is that he becomes what i i overrated dante exum as a draft prospect because i was like oh well even if he can't be the lead guy he can function well next to a lead guy I think that might actually work pretty well with Shea in the long term, even as he gets better. Yeah, yeah, I mean... As long, Ex- as, as, long as the other guy can shoot, but I think that's going to be fine. Ex- Exum Island is a lonely, oh. is a lonely place. Um, it still is. But I think, yeah, but I think the, the meaningful difference here is that not only did Exum have injuries that potentially derailed him, but we never saw him play even you know even when he was just came into the league and he had you know five or seven good minutes against a bench unit or something we never saw him play in any way that was close to I mean even what Shea had at Kentucky just between the handle the ability to get places uh, I feel like Shea uses his bag of tricks more and of course Exum looked like coming out that he was going to be uh, potentially an incredible passer and that never translated, maybe not necessarily because of vision issues, but because if you can't get into your bag of tricks, if you can't create space and angles and get a step, then you can never create those openings to make the passes in the first place. And and Shea, at least, is showing the potential to build off of that going forward, and I'm, I'm, I'm excited about that. As a point of clarification, I'm not... Uh, um I'm not comparing necessarily the two guys. It's just that I think part of what I got wrong with Exum was the idea that that, that skill was valuable, and I think Shea can actually do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm with you. I'm, I'm wondering, what what are we calling this podcast? <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't usually have to do that, so... Okay, okay. Um, I'll, no, I'll, I'll, just... write, I'll write a description. I mean, we, I, I could write about the players that we talked about. Um, 
but yeah, it's are are there any other kind of development stories that that you want to discuss? I mean, I know we we did you did a podcast which I actually have not yet listened to. Sorry enough for kind of going back through some of the breakout guys that we talked about before the season. Are there any of those stories that you thought were interesting? I think the only one to plug in because I've I've seen him um, floating around is Devin Booker, and I and I think with Booker it's very much like Mitchell there are continued small improvements that when you look at where he improved last year from 2018 and then this year from 2019 now he's got a slightly different team around him he's showing skills that you know last year he was asked to do so much with the basketball and now he's doing a little bit more off the ball um, I think that's helped some of his he, he never had you know terrible on ball defensive potential or skills but i think it's helped with some of his activity and his mental awareness and sharpness on defense and so very much like mitchell i see booker as a guy who is continuing to grow incrementally um and like mitchell becoming you know like a a meaningful guard in this league going forward he's still so young and so talented and he's he's pretty good basketball player yeah, I mean he he's really taken strides, and also as we expected, he's he's been helped a lot by having superior surrounding talent, just like a lot of different players were. The one one thing that is, and I've praised Booker a lot, and he's deserved it over the course of this year. I'm a little bit worried about him shooting 75% at the, in the restricted area so far this year, just because that seems unsustainably good. But even toning that down, it'll be, you know, that's a, a few possessions a game and getting that to, let's even call it 70, which would be a career high for him and pretty damn high if it were there. That's still good. But, you know, those sorts of things can lead to drops. So maybe it's a little bit rosy, but then at the same point, you know, he's taking fewer threes right now. And Seth partner were really, really good piece about kind of how that, how that all fits together. And the overall picture for Booker is, 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 is very encouraging right now. And he, but, but, but I think, I think it's almost a catch 22 on that last point, because when you, when you are slotted next to better talent, that doesn't always mean you can still find a way to succeed. And I think some of his off ball movement and cuts and the way he's played without the ball are responsible for that 75% at the rim. It's not That's like true. the guy, right? It's not like the guy's suddenly dunking over people or scooping shots around their their waist when, you know, he challenges bigs or something like that. A lot of these are I back cut you or I made a good read on some set that we have, some some motion read set and I came off and I got an easy look at the rim because of that. And yes, you want Ricky Rubio there feeding him and Aaron Baines making good high post passes or whatever. But that's part of the game. Like you want that guy to be able to scale up and amplify in that way next to better talent. Right. And an example that I've used a lot for that was, you know, the Warriors were really high in restricted area success rate. And oftentimes yep. in attempt rate. And it wasn't that they had great finishers. Generally speaking, the Warriors have not. It's that yep. the structure of their offense created less contested shots at the rim. So they were able to make more of them. By, by a landslide, I tweeted something out. Man, this must have been a couple years ago now. It was the individual team's layup percentage passing. So you have 30 teams, 30 dots on the axis. And it's like, you know, what percentage of your overall assists are layups? out of your total assists. 
and the warriors were just they're on an island they were over in a, their own universe it was like outlier central and so you know the, these things go together the movement the gravity the players create the threats the offensive system the other teammates and so when you look at that rim field goal percentage sometimes it is essentially a function of opening things up elsewhere and getting easy shots off good passes and movement it also makes sense that some of especially the off-ball elements that Devin Booker is is adding come later in the process. And I mean Booker's 23, so there's still a lot more more to come from What is what is he in his 11th season? It feels that way, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. And and he, it's also funny because he still looks young too. So like you get all that kind of I mean but but and and it isn't just a a linear thing of oh, you've been, you know, you're 23 years old, so this is what's going to get better or worse. But the the more some of the more complementary skills, especially I mean Booker, you know, he had an unusual role at Kentucky as well. Th- those things, you know, you, you're working on other stuff, your on ball stuff, your on ball skills, and your shooting and all that. And then later on, it's becoming a piece of a team because most players don't come into the league thinking that's what they're going to be. And Booker right. is, you know, and that's not to say that Booker is any like less of a talent or anything like that. He's still really good. He can still be an important player on a great team. But you gain a greater appreciation, and it moves higher on your your development, not only your development pecking order, but also just your thought processes. Oh, I know how useful this is for other for other people when I when when is for me when they do it and all that kind of stuff. And so it it's not a surprise that in his you know getting into four, five, six years in the league that those are the kinds of developments that Booker's making. Not that they're guaranteed, because, like, I mean, one of my biggest criticisms of Jim, James Harden offensively, not that there are many things, is that I think, especially when he gets trapped and doubled he and are ball denied, that he, that he just doesn't do enough in those circumstances, partially because he's just not as used to it. But... So so it is it isn't a guarantee that everybody gets better at this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And going back to, you know, what we were saying about shooters earlier and, and three and D and having, you know, finding guys that are really skilled. I mean, the fact that we're talking about this in Booker uh, with Booker in conjunction with him shooting takes a bunch of mid range stuff. And he's at 47% this year. This is, uh, you know, what's his free throw shooting in the 90s, like 92%. Like, this is a guy who is just an incredibly talented and skilled shooter from all over the court. And I think demonstrating this, this was the big question I had uh, when I profiled him in video form last summer. It's like, can you can you continue to add value if you play next to other players that are really good or demand the ball um, and then you have to do stuff off ball? And, and I think he's showing the signs that you want to see and those like you said you can't take them for granted still more to talk about with ben taylor but first message from betonline.ag now that we know who's in the super bowl we still have almost a week to get ready for the biggest game of the year chiefs versus 49ers visit our good friends and exclusive podcast one partner bet online to take advantage of the best bonuses in the business sign up for a free account and use the podcast one promo code for a 50 percent sign up bonus I talk with Dave Mason a bit online after the Ben conversation. We got into a little bit of the nuts and bolts of the games and all of the props that are amazing props, both, I mean, halftime stuff and in-game and everything else. As a 49ers 
fan, it, it's hard for me to, to really talk about my prediction because what I want is far more important for me in this specific case than my prediction. And whatever you, you think you know, if it's ne- all from national anthem length to the first the length of the first catch that most guys make or what happens on the first target that a, a receiver gets. You can do all that at betonline.ag. There's some really fascinating props. And of course, you can get in the old standbys of the spread and money line and over under, which are all really interesting for this particular Super Bowl. So whatever you're into for that or for the NBA, we also, of course, have a, a strong slate as always. And there's college basketball going on as well. Go to betonline.ag and use that podcast one promo code to get your 50 50% sign-up bonus, betonline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. Before you and I started doing the part of the podcast that, that people are going to hear, we had an extended conversation about how to handle the, the tragic passing of Kobe Bryant and somebody who has just been such a, a massive figure in the league. And we, you know, we, we had this conversation about kind of kind of where to go with it. I think to do to do his legacy and to do his impact on the sport justice at least in my my circumstance requires somebody who has a more a, a deeper knowledge of of history and who can connect with it in a different way than me partially because of how we came in but it it became as we were talking it kind of became more apparent that as 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 much as it it, it hurts and it sucks it does feel like something that we should spend at least a little bit of time on even if this isn't this this will not be our permanent this will not be our final reflections on his impact or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, I have been in sort of like a podcasting daze for the last, I don't know how long we've been recording. I hope I made sense. It's just been a very, uh, one of the first players we talked about. So we briefly talked about this and how to handle it before we started recording. We started recording, we were talking about some young players, and I can't remember who it was anymore. One of the first players that came up, the 3 and D concept Danny, I was talking about Danny Green, and instantly Robert Ori next to Kobe Bryant popped in my head. We were talking about Donovan Mitchell and Donovan Mitchell and and his growth. Uh, you know, young players having a high curve and the way they grow, and then thinking about, well, here's another superstar wing, Kobe, and just thinking about the years. You know, his rookie year where he was like on the bench and still had all this potential and he was just wiry you know he just looked like he was like 160 pounds soaking wet taking brandy to the prom coming back the second year which you wouldn't call like a because he was still so young you wouldn't call that like a huge jump and yet physically filling out in his body much like when we were talking about shea you know shea this year just starting to fill out his frame uh really had me thinking about that so it's like there there is a ubiquity to this um, that is very hard for me to escape. And and it is a ubiquity that also is is there for both of us due to our connections to, to Southern California. I mean, we there's something part of the thing we talked about beforehand is that I, you know, like for me, I, it's, it's an unusual part of my profile that I didn't grow up watching basketball. I, I mean, it was, it, you know, you like watch Christian Leitner in the tournament and things like that and, and the dream team and Michael and Magic in the finals, but it wasn't a big part of my life. And that happened to coincide with moving to L.A. in 2003. And the first, because I'm a sports addict, and they were, it was the first, it was one of the first times in my life that I had actually lived in a place where there was a good basketball team. Kudos to the Warriors for being so poorly run. I got to write a book about it. Um, <laughs> and the and, and so the the first team I I really watched intently was that 0304 Lakers team, which was an extremely bizarre introduction into NBA basketball, both on and off the court. And Kobe was, 
I, like basically the second I moved down to LA, it was he was a different brand branch of star than I had really dealt with before. And really that was the first, you know, and and such a dominant figure especially then when when Shaq was no longer on the Lakers and I had a lot of thoughts on that. I mean, at the time I, I was again. I was a novice. I had, was just getting into basketball and thought, you know, Shaq is carrying them. Why? Why is? Why are they picking Kobe? All this kind of stuff. And I still have, you know, I still don't know exactly where my thoughts are. I haven't applied my more recent analytical tools all the way back there yet. But going into it from that perspective, and then you know, being being in LA for 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 those years, and then you know, moving moving back to the Bay Area right as the right as they get Powell and the voided Chris Paul trade and. And then and then seeing it come back and, and, and everything from there. And it's just – it is so amazing how – something Nate, Nate and I, I talked about with Nate is that there were so many different phases. But in all of those phases, he demanded your attention and thought. He, he was a singular force. He was a singular force. He was a force, I think, when he was in the room to be around. Um, both you and I have had that experience and in, in, in a way surreal, I think, because – you know, of seeing him from a distance and growing up. I mean, he's he's pretty he's only a couple years older than me. So, you know, it was like when he came to prominence, um, you know, I was playing like high school basketball and watching this teenage kid come in after Garnett and then just thinking through like all of the epochs because his career his career really in many ways had, you know, three to me it felt like it had three very distinct periods. It had the the Kobe Shaq years, essentially. Um, it had the, let's just say post Colorado years. And then it had whatever you want to call this late career, post career, uh, to me, the last five, six, seven years since the Achilles maybe have felt different. And those are three very distinct periods. And yet you look back and you're like, oh my God, this is a person who has been relevant. And I go back to that word, like ubiquitous for almost a quarter century. And I think that was the thing that really jumped out to me. Um, and we're recording this about 48 hours after the helicopter crash. And, and, and what is striking me is that as, as time moves forward, you see more and more and more how connected he was. All of these tentacles that he had developed out into the basketball world. I, I've always loved this about basketball, like the family, the culture, the giving back. Uh, the mentorship, all of this. But I mean, it is overwhelming. Um, and in his case, it's, it extends beyond just this sport, right? It extends into like soccer and tennis. Uh, and so that's that's been one of the sort of takeaways for me as someone who wasn't, a, you know, for the last like 15 years, wasn't really a Kobe guy. It's just how powerful that singular force is and how how it's blanketed the entire sport. Very well put. And something that, that really rocked me to my core was I was talking with my mom. She gave me a call just to see how things were going after, you know, a little bit later in the day. And she was talking about how for her, you know, somebody who largely connected through the sport through me said, wow, I hadn't realized how long he'd played in the league. And then I thought about how the combination of Kobe spending so long in the NBA and his tragic early passing, he played half of, spent half of his life in the NBA. Yeah. And he is 
thankfully, in, in many ways. I mean, we wish it weren't true for him either, but he's the only megastar that that's true because, thankfully, so many of the NBA legends have been able to, you know, that Bill Russell and, and MJ and even Will, I mean, Will passed in his early 60s. Like, that isn't true for them. And so Kobe not only did that in, in, in the NBA, but did so in an era where the NBA was a much different deal than it was in other eras, and that he... He was definitive, and and I and I want to use the word definitive, and this is something I ran into with Nate because you know the the question about how long he was the best player in the league is a divisive one and something where there might not be a clear answer, but he was the most discussed, most important player, and maybe the most influential player for a remarkably long time for a variety of reasons, and I think that's those are a lot of the tentacles, and then to his immense credit. Kobe also did a lot to extend those tentacles himself beyond just, hey, you can look at me on the basketball floor. And I think back to uh, something that came out yesterday that I genuinely didn't know, which is Draymond Green went into, you know, this part I knew, Draymond Green went into a tailspin after the 2016 finals, and one of the people who helped get him out out of it was Kobe Bryant. Kobe, who's dealt with massive basketball-related disappointment in his life, lost in the finals a couple times. And those are different that that's the type of thing that can that leads to a legacy and that that leads to those to those big tentacles because he didn't have to do that you know and and he deserves praise for doing it nobody has you know it's one of those things where you don't criticize players for who choose differently but you praise those who do and he didn't do that with Draymond or with you know the stuff with Trey Young or I mean I was really moved by Bogdan Bogdanovich talking about how he how Kobe not not directly I don't think as much as the other guys affected his game because those those are it's a different type of reach and it is it is remarkable to think about how how large that footprint will continue to grow over time even with his passing you know basketball is a family there, there is a there's something in the culture that I alluded to earlier, and it was it's taken me a little bit. I'm still sort of sorting it out to process why this has hit so hard. And I, and part of and there all the you know there's so much complexity to it. The things we're talking about, many of the things that we won't talk about today. There's there's so much to it. But I think one of the huge components is the basketball family has never really had a loss like this. And it's mind-blowing. I didn't realize this until it was stated. I mean, I I knew it, of course, but I saw it stated right away that he's only the third uh, MVP ever to pass away. The third basketball... It's it's absolutely insane. And by the way, it still doesn't feel real to me. I thought Jimmy Fallon said it perfectly last night that like there was just something about that force, whether you loved him or hated him. We talked about him. Uh, you just didn't feel like it still doesn't feel real. I still can't process it. And I think part of it is that we've never had. So Bob Pettit won the first NBA MVP in 1956. He's 87 years old. Bob Cousy won the second. He's 91 years old. Bill Russell, 85. Oscar Robertson, 81. All these guys are still alive. Uh, Moses died a couple years ago at 60. And then, of course, you alluded to Wilt at 63. And technically, Mel Daniels won an ABA MVP, and he won- he died in 2015 at 70. That's it. Every other great player on this fraternity, every other great player on your all-time lists, your Hall of Fame period uh, pyramids, they're, they're still with us. They're still part of this. They share knowledge, and they interview each other, and they come to the historical events and everything. And, and I think that, for me, especially as a historian, that is such a sort of jarring thing that we're just sit around and take for granted that these members of our family, if you will, 
are just there forever until old age takes them and they leave their mark. And it's like, I'm having a hard time. I keep seeing the 1978 to 2020 and it just doesn't process. The other part that was, that's been challenging for me with Kobe is, and it's so weird because again, neither of us is that much younger than he is. I mean, I'm, I'm turning 35 this year and I, I think that part of what made Kobe resonate a lot beyond his humor and, and, and just becoming more comfortable with his place and everything later in his career was he became more identifiable, more easier to connect with in that late stage career where he, his body just betrayed him. And I think there were elements, I mean, it's so crazy that I thought about this. It was something I never, I never spoke about publicly at the time because it felt kind of morbid, but Kobe was the inspiration for the phrasing that I've called basketball mortality. And the idea that players, you know, that players have a peak of their powers and that they understand when they're not there anymore. And I thought, Kobe, I was I was at a game. It was I think like five or six before he before his last one, and he talked about how the the challenge for him wasn't it wasn't like the inability to get back to maybe not his peak levels, but to get back to the level where he thought he could really help a team. It was the amount of work it took to get to that level, and that it just that it just took so much out of him. And I thought that was really profound, and I thought it gave me a way of connecting why players retire to an average person. And part of you know my life is talking about basketball to people who don't watch it. And so that was really affecting. And then you, you combine that with what ended up becoming the next act for Kobe, which was being a dad and being a great advocate for and mentor for his daughters and for other people's daughters and women's basketball in particular, but also it looks like the entire NBA right now. And so he went from being this polarizing, he with him or against him figure to somebody who became identifiable, who became who became who 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 took the the experience and knowledge of what that was like and became something that we can all identify with and 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 to be able to do that whole cycle at forty one is 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 jaw dropping and the fact that it was that it was him in some ways makes this even crazier. Yeah, and Zach Lowe, uh, who had an incredible piece about him on ESPN today, there was a line that really jumped out to me that I think really connects to what you just said there uh, at the end about the the shift from this polarizing figure, this young, aloof superstar to still how young he is and yet the influence he's had across the entire league. And the line was uh, this, quote, uh, he felt in the endless focus on legacy and championships and trade machinations, the game itself, the craft, the beauty was getting lost. Um, and, and that really hit home for me, A, because that's, you know, my passion, obviously, is nerding out on basketball and the X's and O's and the game and all that. But to see sort of story after story after story of, hey, it's Kobe, call me. Did the guy have everyone's phone number? I think he did. I think he may have had our phone numbers. Like, it's just, I don't understand. Uh, that's That's an incredible thing for my brain to try to process all of these things that were working behind the scenes in a mentorship role, in a love for the game of basketball role. And then I contrast that to like some of the issues with, you know, we we've certainly talked about plenty this year with older players complaining about the game and coverage. And it's like, wow, this guy is like the ambassador. He's the ambassador of the sport. And I think for me, the the connection and the passion for the game and the love for the game, it's actually um, it has me feeling kind of 
like, and I've, I've felt this way anyway, but it's just reinforcing it. Like, man, we, we really should do a better job with going to war with each other on player comparisons, team comparisons, analytics versus eye tests, et cetera. Like we have a common love and passion and the sport has provided so much, especially to those who get to, to cover it. Um, that's something that I'm hoping can be almost in a way a legacy moving forward. Yeah, and, and I think that it, it was interesting that it happened a lot behind the scenes, but it also, to me, when it came out, it wasn't surprising because Kobe, I mean, going back to even whether it's the the reporting that was out there or my limited personal interactions with him, he was a basketball lifer and he had a passion for how things worked. And I remember, you know, one of the things that was very interesting was his excitement about the Warriors. And I mean, that was those early Warriors teams, I mean, go back to various figures who were deriding them for being a jump shooting team. And Kobe, partially because he had personal relationship with Steph and Clay and Draymond, it appears, um, he had a different perspective on it. And it wasn't as public as those people because he didn't have the platform partially by choice. And it, I, I do I, I think we're gonna miss even if it was private, having his voice not only mentoring players, but having it in the potential for the discourse. And honestly, it's sad, it's even sadder for me because of the women's game. And he could have become such an amazing advocate, whether Gigi ended up becoming a, a star, a WNBA player or not, just I mean, he was so proud of his daughters and and and, and that would have been you know, it's it's so great to have those voices that just like for the players, somebody who is who is respected so deeply in the community, just being an advocate is so helpful. Yeah, I, I'm, I, I'm, I don't even think I can talk about Gigi. I, I just she was probably I haven't had time for other sports besides the NBA lately in my life. And some of that is you, you you evolve as a person and your life changes and you have different priorities. But you know, I, college basketball is something I grew up on. I was such a basketball junkie. I used to watch uh, women's basketball, both college and WNBA. And I don't really think there's been a player, like a, a young female player that I've been excited about. Um, I mean, I love Cheryl Swoops growing up. And just being able to get to see her play professionally was probably the closest thing I can think to being like, oh my God, there's going to be like a female Bryant. That that will be fascinating to watch. And, and while... The wish is always that it wouldn't that the last that the that any player you know especially if they're breaking barriers or trying to trying to bring in new fans that it wouldn't it wouldn't be about the last name it helps you know like that that's just that's just the way this works and really whatever brings uh, the it's an inner these are as mu- as much as their games and we analyze them in a very different way it's also entertainment. And whatever gets people in the door, I mean, this is the way that I handle it as an, as people ask me about this with the NBA is like, whatever gets people in the door, then you can rely on the quality of the product. And I, I don't, I don't have the capacity to analyze their game. And I, I, of course, just, just mourn, mourn the loss. And I mean, for everything for the Bryants, but that is, that is a part of this. And it's, and, and especially for, you know, as, as much as it, well, wish it didn't matter for men and boys to support the, to support and engage with the women's game. I'm watching more WNBA now and, and college than I ever have, partially because I didn't really before and gaining a greater appreciation for it. There are actually some current NBA players that are part of the reason why I do that. And it's, and, and it is, it is a really wonderful product. And, and I, it is for so many reasons. It, it's, it's a shame 
personally and i mean just for just for as you said the family of basketball there this is just it's it's such an unfathomable loss and we you know we'll be we'll be dealing with it and honoring it as as best we can but at a certain point you just you, you do have to just acknowledge that and offer offer support and just we'll make we'll make the best of it and i think that's that's the other way to honor the legacy is just to keep the focus on the bas- uh, on basketball and appreciating what makes this sport something worth the obsession that many of us have for it. I think the only other thing uh, I, I can think of to say today at this point is to point out having lived in L.A. And, and, you know, you're back in the Bay Area now, but having lived in L.A., I moved here in 2003 as well. And the impact on the city, um, not just the sports scene and, and even cultural things, but sort of all of the I mean, it is so deep, his sort of uh, tentacles in the city and just seeing um, what it's like here in the last few days to go out. Certainly on Sunday, that's all anybody was talking about. Uh, a lot of really low heads, really, really low hung heads. Uh, and I, I went to a movie to kind of get away. I mentioned this to you right before we started recording. I, I, at some point in the day, I was like, all right, I'm going to go, I'm going to, I, I, I gotta, gotta get away from this. And I went to a movie and I, I pull into the parking lot at the movie theater and the, uh, the security guy has a 24 yellow Jersey on over his uniform. And that was just sort of symbolic. I think of, of, uh, the power and the importance and and the resonance, which for me living in LA for all these years has even snuck up on me uh, in its sort of shockingly overwhelming way. So that was the last thing I I wanted to mention. Um, I think I got through that. I made it. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, I I mean, I, I was thinking about that a little bit today too, and how LA gets this rep of being it's you know it is lar- a, a lot of times a city of transplants and people have complicated allegiances and and there's the oh it's the weather's so good that people don't care about sports and to an extent there are times that that is true however it is not always true about the lakers and it is not always true about legit like stars and kobe was he was that guy in a way that nobody else was during the time that i lived there and that's been true even when i've been going back and i mean the fir- the first nba game winner i ever saw in person was was a kobe game winner and i think about that too and he was for for people whether they were in the city for a couple of years or they were born and raised he was for for one of the biggest cities for one of the biggest cities in the world i mean in one of the biggest sports cities in the world he was a definitive figure for basically one fifth of a century and there aren't many people like that who have ever existed and right. it's it, it is beyond his his reach as a player and his dominance as a player and he's going into go into the hall of fame later this year that that is something i think you and i can just i mean we don't need to go into specific stories but it's something that we can both vouch for is the 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 place that he has in in that city is really it's really unparalleled and it's i think that it's it's going to take a long time for everybody else to process how that compares to different figures in other cities and it's it, not that there has to be a, a contest or a comparison or anything like that but i i'm guessing that a lot of people didn't realize that LA has that capacity and it absolutely right. does and it's absolutely him right and, and i grew up in boston which is a, just a crazed sports culture um really really deep sports culture and there are 
idols and icons and legends and all that. And even this, again, not to compare it per se, but just even even him and and the way he is in this city. And we have way too many stories probably between the two of us to even start broaching. But just that has been a presence in the social fabric of this city for at least 15 years I uh, went 17 years ago I moved here and it's and it's feels solely unique to me and and I don't know if the force and the power and I'll come full circle the ubiquity of that um, can maybe even be conveyed in words to people who aren't here to, to experience it well thank you so much for for taking the time always a pleasure to talk with you even on a tough day like today do I owe you anything for the therapy bill or should I just is it is this gratis it's gr- it's it's gratis. That's not that's not what my degree is for. So we'll we'll consider it that way. Okay, Danny, appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thanks again to Ben Taylor for taking the time to come on. You can check him out. The thing to look for is Thinking Basketball basically everywhere. He does a great podcast, does a fantastic YouTube channel, and you can also follow him, of course, on Twitter at E-L-G-E-E, number three, number five. Love having him on and never could have planned this, never would have wanted to have planned this, but I was really happy to have him on and happy to have that conversation with him as we're both working through all this. I'm going to tell a little Kobe story after I talk to Dave Mason, but first, Dave Mason from betonline.ag talking about the Super Bowl, which is the other gargantuan sports thing that is coming up this Sunday. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Obviously, a a big week in your line of work, really, in all sports lines of work with the Super Bowl coming. I I think the first thing I wanted to ask you was just having a Super Bowl with a close line. How does that affect things versus one where it's a little bit more of a a separation like we've seen a couple times in recent years? Right. Well, um, you know, the... You know, I was looking at the action just a few minutes ago, and it's interesting that the betters are taking the Chiefs minus one. Chiefs betters are on the spread. The 49er betters are on the money line. So when you have a close like that, that's how often out is the, 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 the money line betters will take the underdog, but the, the spread betters will take the favorite, and that's no different here. I think like 65% of the betters are on the Chiefs minus one, whereas like 72% of the betters are on the uh, 49ers currently plus 105. That's really interesting. Uh, wow. Yeah, I mean, you can think about, and, and I'm sure the volume is pretty, I mean, I don't know if this volume is higher for this one, but it is a Super Bowl, so I know it's crazy. Yeah, no, the volume's through the roof. Um, we, you know, there's still two days left of action to come in, but every Super Bowl's big, but we're expecting this one to be early indicators. We, we Last year was our biggest game ever, and it's looking like we'll surpass that. We'll see. Um, it helps that there's two interesting teams, you know, got some Niners and Chiefs and Mahomes out there. So, uh, so yeah, the action's great. And that total, the total's getting a ton of action, too. And, and we're going to need the under big. 86% of the early betters are on the uh, over. So, wow. That's action, too. So, when you have one of those totals, you know, whereas they're kind of split on the money line and the spread there, the, 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 the total, there, there's nothing split against it. There's the, we're going to need the under big. I know the, the, the sheer number of options of bets on the Super Bowl is truly jaw-dropping. Are there any of those that you think are either favorites in terms of things that you like or just favorites in terms of what they are that that, that interest you? Oh, the props? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a ton. I mean, shoot, you know, the you know, Super Bowl's all about the props, right? And, and whereas during a regular NFL game, you know, 10% of the action might be on props if that. Super Bowl, you're talking probably about 40% of the volume. When I'm talking volume, I'm talking money, not really bet count. 
forty percent of the money's probably on these props, and you know we have that players prop software where we have all the standard kind of Mahomes uh, over under passing yards, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you can even create props and matchups in that player prop software, and then we have all the exotics and uh, other stuff in the regular sports book, and and they can bet. I mean, it's it's amazing how much they get bet. People think they're just little novelty props, and the the the, the limits are a little lower. But I mean, that that like last year that national anthem, we had a six figure decision on that national anthem over under. So I mean, you know, originally you put those things up for kind of for PR and 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 just to get your name out there. But these things get bet at serious business. These these, these dang uh, I call them PR props, but novelty props or whatever you want to call them. Yeah, and something that interested me uh, on Bet Online is that not only do you have you know like the what what seem like the normal things now, like the anthem or various things related to the halftime show, but also some really specific player props. Like, will the like how far will the first reception by a given player? How long will that play be? And I was sure. like, that would be intellectually that's really fun to kind of wrap your head around, or just to make very specific things significantly more interesting. No, absolutely. I mean, you, you look at the game, and every every it's it's endless and limitless of what you can offer props on. I mean, it's just every play, and that's what it's all about. It's about maximizing the action on the game and and giving players, you know, they're going to come and bet props more more on Sunday than they ever ever did all season by far, and. You know, you want every play to have some kind of scenario tied to a prop, whether it's a play or a commercial or halftime show or national anthem or whatever. You just always want people betting and getting in on the action. Absolutely. Do you have a feel yet, personally, for how you think it's going to play out? Uh, the game, I, I, I'm leaning Niners. Um, you know, this, it's a tough one. I mean, that spread's tight. It's it's. I'm going back and forth, but I, I'm leaning it. Gun to head right now, and I'm taking Niners and on the money line. I'll be one of those guys on the Niners money line. I'm waiting. I'm kind of waiting to see on the uh, on the total. Uh, we think that if we go up, sharps are going to hit it the under. Uh, that's why it's really not going up anymore, even mm-hmm. despite the one sided action. I don't have opinion there, but if, if sharps are on it and I can get the same price, I'll do it too. What the heck? But uh, yeah, lean, lean San Francisco now. Hold off on the total. That's what I'm doing. Yeah, it's if, for me as somebody who's a born and raised Niners fan, this will be a challenging one for that respect. But yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for the game and so thankful to spend some time with you. Looking forward to it. Thank you so much. Thanks to Dave Mason for coming on. And, of course, thanks to Ben Taylor for previously coming on. Again, you can follow him at ELGEE35. It feels weird considering everything that happened to talk about the ways that you can support the show, but it is still, of course, important for us. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast wherever you're choosing. You can do that in Apple Podcasts. It's awesome if you do. And if you use something else, you can actually leave a review both places. Also, word of mouth. I mean, especially if you thought what, what, what our conversation on Kobe was particularly special. There have been so many great remembrances. You can share that. But really anything. I, mean, I love talking with Ben and, and want to make sure that his work also gets spread around. You can do so. Also, subscribing and downloading every episode is so important for Real Jam Radio in particular because it doesn't come out on a specific day of the week. You can't get into a habit because it depends on my time and my guest time. So you can do that. 
And of course, the single most important thing you can do with this show and any other that has them is check out our sponsors. That is most important for new sponsors like Keeps. K-E-E-P-S dot com slash real GM. You can get your first month of treatment for free. And of course, tell them that you came from us. And then betonline.ag. Use that podcast one promo code for a 50% sign up bonus, which is great. If you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, Danny LaRue, NBA at gmail.com is the way to do it. And I also have written work at The Athletic have a Pistons strategy planning session coming up. I've, I've written, done some kind of cap space trade deadline material as well, as well as the gigantic mock trade deadline, which is with Dunked On, Nate Duncan, Kevin Pelton, Dan Feldman. Started that, came out. We recorded it on Sundays. It's coming out in pieces, of course, delayed by the tragic passing of Kobe Bryant. And I said earlier in the show that I was going to talk, tell a little story. And this is one that I told Ben before we recorded. And I thought it was an appropriate way to end this from a little bit of a personal perspective. So I fell in love with basketball late. That's something longtime listeners know. And that was really in college. And Kobe was one of the was one of the prominent players on the first team I watched regularly. That Ben and I talked about, but I didn't tell this story. That it probably was in 2007. It might have been 2006. I get I'm go, still at UCLA, and I get a text from one of my good friends that says Men's Gym now, and I knew what that meant. And it was it was I believe during finals, but I think my last final had finished. I was getting ready for graduation, something like that. And so I run down to the Men's Gym at UCLA, and that is a place where to this day there are impromptu were planned basketball games involving college players, NBA players, whoever's in town, really. And the reason he texted that to me was because not only was Kevin Garnett there and numerous other NBA players, I, I believe Russ was there, but it went back when he was at UCLA. I can't remember for that for sure. And Kobe, of course, was there too. And it, we, we only got to see the very end of that time, but it was still really cool to see those players in a more casual setting. And you know, and then after that, they took their time. Nobody was nobody was bothering them. We were just standing gawking. And I mean, this is a couple of few years before I was covering anything, much less writing about it. And then I don't even know exactly how it happened. But basically, once it kind of appeared that the players were on their way out, I don't know if there was an organization or anything. But all of a sudden, all of the kind of commoners like me that were there just kind of stood in a line. And then there weren't many. I would say it was probably a couple dozen. And Kobe just walked down the line and high five, handshake for everybody. And I think it was and and it was a reminder of just how his presence in this city and his just sheer wattage was something special. And I mean, I, I'd lived in LA for a few years at that point. I'd you know you get weird opportunities in LA to see and sometimes interact with very very famous people, and it was different. It was fundamentally different, and it was very interesting then to be covering him just a few years later. I think the first time I covered Kobe was less than three years after after that interaction, and he was a, he was a giant, and that was true. As a player, it was true as a father and as a figure within the basketball community. And he leaves a complicated legacy, to be sure, in many different capacities. And as Ben and I talked about, neither of us was really a Kobe guy, quote-unquote. I mean, we both have a particular basketball aesthetic. But there is a an appreciation of what he did and how he succeeded and the work ethic and skill level. And the last thing I'll end on is um, he, of course, couldn't have known about it. Months ago, Ben, as the start of this great debates feature that he's been doing on his pod, he did a Harden, Wade, Kobe pod. 
and took a part of that and made it into a video that I think was just released like two weeks ago. And it was about Kobe and the playoffs and, and how his skill level translated. And you can watch full games. There's so, there's so much great material, whatever you want to consume. But I was really struck. I, I was watching that this morning before we recorded. And it was, in some ways, just the straight X's and O's of what made Kobe a dominant player and why his game succeeded in the playoffs when many other players degraded was fascinating. And I thought, even though it was never intended, no, none of our worst nightmares was it ever meant to be a tribute to Kobe's life. I think that that sort of thing actually works beautifully to convey him as a player. And so I would check that out. That's on Ben's Thinking Basketball YouTube. I'll also probably link to it from my account at some point between now and when most people listen to this. So it is... It is tough for me, it is tough for the whole basketball family, but I know there are so many more involved in involved in this tragedy, those connected with the Bryants, of course, those connected with the Lakers, and all the other families who and friends who lost loved ones in that helicopter crash. And all I can do is say, I'm sorry that it happened, and best wishes, and as a basketball community, hopefully we appreciate what is wonderful about what so many of us have devoted our lives, our livelihoods to, and I'm thankful every day that I get to do this, especially with the people who I get to do it with. And I, I couldn't dream, I couldn't dream of anything more. So thank you to everybody who has made that possible and continues to, you know who you are. And thank you so much. Take care and make it a great day.